Happy Easter, since we said it three times. Uh, but he is risen. Uh, we had a, a great time uh, this morning for our sunrise service. It's always nice when you have a late Easter, so it's not nearly as cold. By the way, any children four, year, four years old through kindergarten can head to the back uh, for Children's Church. Uh, and uh, we had a beautiful morning this morning, just crystal blue and a uh, great, great group out there, great fellowship and uh, to ponder the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. We're, if you're visiting with us, we have been studying through Paul's letter to the Galatians, and we're still in Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 4, uh, if you want to turn there. Uh, we're going to uh, see how what he talks about here ties into, uh, in fact, uh, the resurrection. So we're going, I'm going to read to you this morning chapter 4, verses 4 through 7 of Galatians. But we're really going to focus in on uh, verses 5 and 6 uh, and a little bit on 7. So hear the Lord's word. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. You've heard from the Lord. Let's pray and ask him to teach us and apply, apply this to each one of our hearts and lives. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for that great revelation made by, through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Uh, we thank you that he's telling us what you accomplished. Now, Lord, we need you to give us hearts that believe it, that apply it, that grip it. Some of us are here in some pretty sketchy times. Uh, it may be times of sadness or, or loneliness or uh, tragedy. Um, a lot of us are here joyfully. But Lord, you, you know how each one of us needs to hear this uh, and needs to ponder it and needs to believe it. And so we ask you to do that because that's what you do by your spirit. And so we ask it because Jesus is risen, because he's seated at your right hand right now, because he's even interceding for us as we hear your word. And so we ask it in his name. Amen. Last week, uh, Michael, Matthew Eichard uh, showed us in these first couple of verses, four and five, uh, the fact that uh, God sent his son, says as a human being, born of a woman, as a Jewish human being, born under the law, uh, to, and this morning, we learned that God not only sent his son, but he also sent the spirit of his son, and we're going to unpack what that means, and it actually involves Easter, although nothing about eggs. So, uh, the first thing we see is that it tells us that God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Now, Matt, again, last week, Matthew unpacked the fact that Paul says that Jesus redeemed us. And he used this word re redemption that Jesus didn't just die for your sins to, to justify you. To justify you is a legal term to get you into a position. But the idea of redemption 
uh, that Matthew talked about last week is it's the purchasing of a slave. And, and throughout this passage, you even heard it at, at, the, at the end of verse 7 there where it says, you're no longer a slave, but a son. Is that Paul has been building this argument that we were, we were enslaved, that we, we were imprisoned to Satan. I mean, the way it worked was God, Satan tempted Adam, which, which led him, and he was the representative. He was the, the federal head of everybody he was representing. He led him into sin, and that dragged down everybody who was under his purview. So, in, in a sense, in, spiritually, in spiritual genetics, that means every single one of us are born sinners. Okay? It's not that we go sin. It's just that we're born sinners, and so that's what we do. We do who we are, and therefore we're enslaved by death because you know, God's the one who created everything, and so therefore he sets the rules, and God says that all sinners shall die because God's holy. And he wants us to love him. He wants us to love one another. And it's treasonous to not do that, to not love one another and to not love him. And so God's law imprisons us because it shows us the fact that we're just in a bad, bad place. And so that, that's what we've been reading up to this point and, and what the world celebrates as individualism or, or self-determination uh, is, is what destines us really for, for death. And that's the prison we're in. But Christ pays the price. It's the purchase price to buy somebody out of its slavery. Back then in that time with their slavery, which was generally not chattel slavery, it was people who would, if they were in debt, they didn't have, they didn't have government support. Yeah, they didn't have welfare. They didn't have social security. And so if you were in debt, you could sell yourself to someone as a slave voluntarily for a period, but what that meant was you were covered. That was your welfare, except you're going to work for it. And, but you also could, you sold yourself to them for a period, and then you could purchase yourself back as you gradually earn money. The slavery, it, it, our fate is set. And it, and it dogs our steps that death follows us uh, along. But Christ pays the price by dying in our place because somebody has to die for, for our sin. And he frees us from the uh, imprisonment. But then the passage today down in verse 6 says, we, we were redeemed so that we receive adoption as sons. And it says, because we were sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Now, mentioned a couple weeks back, Paul, in his day, he was not misogynist, okay? In that culture, inheritance came down through the sun. He was speaking to his culture and writing in his culture. It's appropriate for us to interpret what that word means as including being sons and daughters. It's inclusive. In fact, just a few verses before this, at the end of Galatians 3, Paul, in a radical, something that was radical for that day, says if you are in Christ, if you're attached to Christ, says there's no male and female in Christ. And what he meant, he, did, he wasn't totally removing distinctions, but he's saying as far as God is concerned, you are not in a different category if you're a female as if you're a male. You have equal access to God. And that was radical because that was that was unique in the world in that day. 
just like slave and free, he says the distinction is erased as far as your status. Nobody viewed a free person and a slave person as equal in status. Nobody viewed a woman as, and a man as equal in status in that day. This was groundbreaking and, and has unpacked what's happened over the next couple thousand years since then uh, in many ways to, to, to break that down. But Paul says this is available to everybody. He makes us sons and daughters. That he's not remote. God's not generic. Okay? He's not distant. Uh, and, and removed, he, he, he wants all of it. He wants us to relate to him as a father. Okay, he wants you to know him uh, personally as, as a father, everything a father should be. Now, here's an implication of, of what he talks about here. It says he sends the spirit into our hearts to tell us that we're sons, so that our hearts cry, Abba, Father, so that we have a sense. It's not only that we've received this status, but it comes to confirm the status to our hearts, that we know on the inside that we're sons of God. And, but what it tells us is he, he's telling us that. And so it's a supernatural, it's a supernatural effect, something that makes you a son, that makes you a child of God. If it's supernatural, it means it's not natural. Hebrews 2.11 says, but the one who makes men holy, which is God making us holy, and those who are made holy are of the same family, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. In other words, he makes us his children. He makes us his, his siblings. And the reason that's significant is because there are those out there who, who mistakenly think that all human beings, and this is a mistaken thought, that all human beings are, are children of God. That's not what the Bible teaches anywhere. That... God's intent in creating Adam was that he would be his son and that everybody who came from Adam would be his son. But when Adam fell, when Adam rebelled, when he stiff-armed God and said, I'm going to be the king, I'm going to rule my domain, I'm going to make my decisions, and God will be a helper, but I'm going to be the king, sonship was lost for him and for everyone who came from him. So, the point that God's making here is that we, he brings us into his family. He chooses and makes and calls the people to be his children. That's adoption. That's why God chose us. I mean, think about it. God chose that picture. He chose that analogy. Because why? In, in adoption, who makes the choice? The parents, right? My dad was adopted. Okay. He, he didn't choose to be an Elliot. Of course, if you were born, you didn't choose it either. <laughs> but he, he didn't put himself into the family. He was brought joyfully and lovingly by my grandparents into the family. And so it's, it's a gift. You, you get brought in from the outside. And adoption tells us not only that, that, that God makes his children into his family. So those who he calls to himself and brings to himself are his children. But it also means you're brought in from the outside. You're made an insider. You ever feel like an outsider? The Part of the reason for that is because we all are, naturally. We're, we're born as outsiders. But, but through Jesus' redemption, he takes rebels 
rebellious sinners into, into his house, in, into his home, into his, with, to be within his family. So it's not just that he legally makes us acceptable so he can put up with us. He actually brings us into his family. He wants us uh, to know and to sense that we are his You know, even if you're new at a church, this church or another church you go to, and you feel like an outsider, or maybe you're just in a season of life where your life schedule allows you little connection with the family of God, and you feel like an outsider, or you're just kind of marginally involved, and you feel like an outsider, if, if you believe in Christ, you are an insider in his family and his kingdom. Now, hopefully that is mirrored, replicated, uh, in, the, in the church family you're part of. That's why we talk about repeatedly talk about us being a church family. We're not an organization. We're, we're a, a family the way that he's put it together. I, I want to read to you what has been a, one of the more powerful statements for me about the, the sweetness and the beauty of adoption. Uh, Jim Packer wrote the following. He said, you sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase, if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, get this, it says, in the same way you sum up the whole of New Testament religion, if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child. And having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls your worship and your prayers and your whole outlook on life, it means you don't understand Christianity very well at all. He says, for everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. See, the, the, the 12 times in the Old Testament where God gives reference to this father-child connection, he speaks of all of Israel corporately as his son. And what Jesus came and he said that he'd do is that now it's personal, it's individual, that we individually are to call on him as our father. Now, before I unpack more about what that means, what's interesting is, you know, we read here that the Father sent the Spirit. We saw back in verse 6. But it's not just the Father that sends the Spirit. The resurrected Jesus pours out his Spirit. Okay, so let's step back. Think of, you know, it's, it's early Sunday morning. The sun's risen. It may have still been dark when, uh, when the women kind of made their way through Jerusalem. And they, they've gone to the place where they've been before. Uh, they'd seen and they'd taken note of the place where, where the body of Jesus would, had been taken down from uh, by Joseph Arimathea and had placed it. And it was a, a tomb. They saw where he was laid. And it was a rock tomb. We talked at the sunrise service. We mentioned how there was a slight incline and so the, the rock could be rolled in front of it, but it was a lot easier to roll it down an incline than to push it back up an incline. Uh, in Jewish reckoning, not much time, it elapsed, like 36 hours had elapsed. By our reckoning, it, we, we counted 36 hours. For them, it was three days. It was the current day, the next day, and then the beginning of the third day. 
And now it's early Sunday morning, and these women have come to this tomb, and there's Mary Magdalene. There's the other Mary, who's the mother of Jesus. There's Mary, who's uh, the mother of uh, Joseph. There's Salome. Mary, the mother of Joseph, was the sister-in-law of Jesus' mother. Salome was her sister. So these, these four women come, and they... They have these spices, but they, you know, all they're thinking of is who's going to roll away the, the stone? How do we get into this tomb? And they, they purchased the spices. Joseph of Arimathea had already begun the anointing, but it was, it was, the Sabbath was about to come on them on Friday, so he had to do it real quickly. And now as they're coming, you know, they figure, you know, in the the tomb being cool, being closed off, the body probably won't have rotted too much. They didn't bring the spices to embalm the body. They bought the spices because dead bodies decay and they stink. The spices were there to cover up uh, the stench uh, of what they were going to find uh, inside uh, the, um, the tomb. The But when they get there, the stone's gone. The body's missing. Because, and they're told by the angel who's sitting there that Jesus had been resurrected. He'd been risen. He was no longer there. And, and subsequently, in the subsequent days, there were hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw him. They, they heard from him in the days that followed, and it created such a stir about 50 days later on a Jewish holiday known as Pentecost. It was called Pentecost because it was 50 days after Passover when this happened. And it had been real quiet during the intervening time, apart from Jesus meeting with the disciples and meeting with these people who saw him. And he met with them and he told them to wait. And so they huddled in this room, about 120 of them, and they waited. But on this day of Pentecost, here's what we read. And suddenly there came a, from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began speaking in other tongues as the Spirit had given them utterance. And this just stunned these crowd, the crowds. There were crowds of Jews who came in from all around the world to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast of Pentecost, and they're, they're just confused. They're, they're, they're befuddled and thrown off by what, what's going on with these people who are praising God in their languages. And they don't know what to make of it. And so Simon Peter, one of the disciples, he, he's, he gets up and he, he starts to explain it. He begins to preach and he argues that what they've just seen is a work of God's spirit. But it was there because Jesus Christ was risen. It's the product of a risen, resurrected Christ. He says this is proof that he's resurrected, that Christ sent his spirit, who is now speaking through his people in all these languages of these Jews who are in from around the world. And listen to his argumentation. He says, verse 31 to 33, he says, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah, the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. He says, this Jesus... God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out 
this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You hear what he says? He says, we as disciples, we were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. He was the Messiah. He was long awaited by the Jewish people, the one that God promised to send to them. But all these 3,000, there were 3,000 Jews who heard what he said and believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And they were witnesses of the spirit of the Messiah. Jesus, you know, we read in Galatians that the Father sent the spirit. Here we're told that he sent the spirit through Jesus. And Jesus, because he was risen, according to what Peter says here, Jesus poured out the spirit. The Father and the Son are, are sending the Spirit of God down on his people. Peter says, because of what you've seen with these people, it proves Jesus has been risen, because that's where he came from. These, these are fishermen and, and tax collectors. They don't know how to speak your languages. It, it, it happened because there's a supernatural event here that the Spirit of God has entered them because Jesus is now resurrected. So the Father sent the Spirit, the Son sent the Spirit. Let's just talk about the Spirit. What's some of the role of the Spirit? And that's where we go back into our passage that we see in verse 6. Because you're His sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into... Now, notice, I love how Paul switches this. Paul's writing to the Galatians. He says, because you are sons... But he's so excited about it, he wants to include himself. And so he said, he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. He said, I got it too. This is so good. And he says, crying Abba, Father. There, there are a lot of roles that the Holy Spirit fills. A lot of things that he does. Here it talks about a significant one, that he cries in our hearts, Abba, Father. Now Abba is what, Middle Eastern children did and, and, and still call their fathers. But it means more than just daddy. Abba has also been discovered in certain legal texts as the designation that grown children used to speak of in claim, when they're claiming their inheritance from their deceased father. So it's not so much about being a, a child, but it is very much about being intimate. There's an intimacy to say, Abba, Father. That the, the Son procured our legal status, but the Spirit of the Son secures your actual experience to feel like a child of God. Like J.I. Packer said, if, if, you don't, if you don't understand it that way, you don't fully understand what Christianity is about. And what, but it's not just that we call him Abba Father. What does it say? What's the word right for Abba? It says crying. It's, it's a participle. Don't worry, I was only an English major for one semester, so it'll be... A participle just means it keeps on happening. Okay, it's, it's not a one-time event. It keeps on happening. Crying, not just cried. And... That, that we cry it from our heart. So it's, there's no, it's not a personal detachment. It's, it, there's this confidence and this expectation of deliverance. I've, I've asked a lot of you in, different, in small group situations, you know, when, when, where else do we hear this? Abba, Father. We run into that in another place in the Bible. And it's not on the cross, but it's real close to it. It's shortly before in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Again, we read at the end of Mark, Jesus was praying and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. I mean, what was going on there? Wasn't that the worst moment up to that point in Jesus' life? He knew what was coming. Paul, Paul is saying that as Jesus was able to cry out intimately to his father when he was just being the most transparent that we ever see him. I mean, what religion, if it was trying to create a religion and create a buzz, it was trying to you know, brand itself, would have the hero of its, the faith try to get out of it? It's only there because it's true. Okay, they weren't creating something. They weren't spinning it. They weren't trying to brand themselves. It's just what happened. It tells you how bad it was for Jesus to go to the cross. Not because of the pain you would experience on the cross, because there were two other guys right next to him that went through the same pain, physically. But it's because, as we've alluded to before in the service, as Jesus hung on the cross, he received the wrath of his Father. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. He bore the sin of his people. If you've put your faith in him, he was carrying your sin, and he was hanging naked before a holy God, being judged. That, the, that was the, the pain that, that he was receiving was the judgment of his father. And what Paul's telling the Galatians and telling us is that you too can have that level of intimacy in your worst moments, not to mention in your best moments. When you're crying out to God and you want him to hear you, you want to have that confidence that you can say, I'm a father. When we're, I mean, what is it you cry out? What is it you, you just give a gut yell? That's when things are pretty sketchy, right? That's what Jesus did, and he says the exact same confidence that you will be heard is yours if you've been redeemed by Jesus. If you receive what Jesus did as yours, it's yours. In fact, he writes elsewhere in Romans 8, he says, for if you did not receive, you did, he says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons or the spirit of sonship by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Notice what he says here. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. It's this confidence. You know, if you're timid, if you don't have confidence, you're stammering, you might even not say anything. But if you're able to cry out, you've got confidence. You feel secure. Remember when Margaret and I were dating and uh, when we got to the point to where she could just go off on me. It, this sounds kind of strange. But it made me feel more secure because I thought, she, I, knew, I knew she wouldn't do that with anybody else. Because she was too sweet. But if she did it with me, she felt secure in my love. Or she was just so mad she didn't care about it. <laughs> I'm an optimist. I want the first one. <laughs> but there, there's a security. When is it, we, you know, we can cry out to the Lord is, is there's a confidence that we're his. One thing really neat, probably 400 years ago, almost, uh, when they, a group of men, pastors and teachers got together, uh, the Westminster Conf uh, Assembly wrote the Confession of Faith, and about... Adoption, they write this. There's a couple of paragraphs I just want to read to you. It says, this certainty is not merely a conjectural 
or probable persuasion that's grounded on a fallible hope, but it's an infallible assurance of faith founded on the divine truth of the promises of salvation, on the evidence in our hearts that the promised graces are present, and on the fact that the spirit of adoption witnesses with our spirits that we're God's children. That's where the certainty comes from. It says, the Holy Spirit by whom we are sealed for the day of redemption is the pledge of our inheritance. See, when, the, when it talks about our inheritance, remember when that last verse 7 said, if you're sons, you're also heirs? The inheritance is God has promised, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. And it says, if you're a son, you can cash in on that. You are his. And he is yours. It's just this sweet certainty. And it goes on in the next paragraph to say, this infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and contend with many difficulties before he partakes of it. You know what that's saying? If you're a Christian and you're saying, man, if, if, if Dr. Packer says, you don't know much about Christianity unless you know that he's your father. I'm in trouble because I don't know that I feel that okay. And notice these, these guys, these pastors were so wise. They said, you know, sometimes it takes a while before the spirit resonates that in your heart. And if, you're, if you struggle with having a sense of knowing that God is your father, even though you, 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 you feel that you're, you are trusting in Christ, just keep asking him. The cool thing is it's the job of the spirit. That's what he does. So just keep asking God by his spirit to give you that sense that, that you're his and that he's yours. It goes on to say, yet because he's enabled by the spirit to know, okay, God helps you to know the things which are freely given to you by God, you may without any extraordinary revelation, okay, it doesn't need to be a dream, doesn't need to be anything flashy, you can attain this assurance by the proper use of the ordinary means. In other words, just... Be in worship, sit under God's word, keep seeking him, and he will bring you this assurance. I received a pretty cool letter Friday that talks about this assurance. My, my cousin's daughter uh, graduated, went to Northwestern University uh, up by Chicago and graduated, and uh, upon graduation, chose to go to a Middle Eastern country that can't be divulged. I don't even know what it is. Uh, but she's, she's working with a uh, crew uh, there. And I just want to read to you uh, what she talks about. She's been there since last summer. She says, I don't really believe in coincidences. From a young age, I've, I've known God's both omniscient and omnipotent, which means that he knows everything that'll happen because he's in control of what will happen. She says, I love to stand back and realize that random things, which I thought were disconnected, actually form integral parts of the story he's mapped out. She says, several months ago, my teammate Kirsten and I approached two girls sitting at a bench on their university. Now, I understand these are Arab girls. This is a very Muslim country. They're not supposed to be in. When we asked to sit with them, they shyly but warmly said yes. One girl had to go to class pretty soon after we sat down, but the other one happily stayed to talk with us. When talk turned to spiritual things, the girls told, this girl told us that since high school, she'd been curious about who Jesus was and had been seeking to learn the truth about him. She said that though she'd grown up believing one thing about him, she learned that he played a very different role in Christianity. We got to share with her small bits of our testimonies and how we came to believe that Jesus is Lord. 
At the end of our conversation, Kirsten and I realized this girl is a friend of our teammates, a girl that our team calls Frankie, and that her friend who had class was Avery. But because we only knew their code names, we didn't recognize the real names when we were introduced to them. She says, a few months later, my teammates Rachel and Lorelai got to hang out with Frankie and Avery again. And they told my teammates they'd been reading a book that discusses how the Bible talks about Jesus and who Christians think he is. My teammates were astonished to hear these girls say they thought Jesus is God. For people in this culture, this is revolutionary. Rachel and Lorelai weren't sure if the girls were just parroting the ideas they'd learned in the book or if they actually understood the gravity of what they were saying, but they were still excited. And then last week, one of my, my, my teammates got to meet up with Avery for dinner because Frankie had a family emergency that called her away at the last minute. And Rachel and Lorelai started up a casual conversation to catch up with Avery, and they're asking about the holidays that are coming up in this country. She says, Avery responded with lackluster answers, not seeming very interested in talking about them. However, she brightened when my teammates mentioned Easter. So shaking with excitement, she said to them, I just really wish I could celebrate Easter in Jesus. My teammates were shocked. It seems as if Avery and Frankie have actually made real decisions to follow Christ, which is absolutely incredible. What's even more awesome is the clear progression of how God has been pursuing these two girls since high school, long before anyone on my team arrived in this country. He had a plan for them from the beginning, and I'm honored that we got to play a small role in it. Praise the Lord for his goodness and sovereignty. We have two new Arab sisters in Christ. And think, today, they are worshiping Jesus on Easter for the first time. And if their families find out about it, they may get killed. God sent his son to redeem those girls, and he sent the spirit of his son to give them that confidence. They believe Jesus is God when they have no reason to otherwise. You know, Jesus, Jesus always thought of his followers as children of his father. Remember in Mark 3, he's sitting around, he looks around at the people around him, he says, here are my brothers and my sisters. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This wasn't a new thought after Jesus died. This was Jesus' intent all the way through. In fact, on the day of resurrection, he said to Mary Magdalene, he said, go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. All the way through the Gospel of John, although in Matthew, I mean, the whole Sermon on the Mount is life with the father. He talks about but in, in John, Jesus talks about my father, my father, my father, my father, and it's not until after the resurrection in verse 20, he says, I'm going to my father, your father. That's the significance of Easter. That's what the resurrection's about. And then as, as Jesus, being his sonship, controlled everything he did, that's what he expected would be the truth with us. That you as a son or a daughter, that's going to control everything you do, that you're going to imitate the father. In, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Because that's what your father does. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. He, he, he glorified the father, and he says to us, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven. Again, 
Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, he's your father. He says, this is how you pray, our father. You know, the worst prayer may have originally said just, oh, Abba, or Abba. Hallowed be your name. Again, it's the basis for prayer, that, that it's, it's, it's free and it's bold. He says, if, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Always talking about the Father. When he talks about not being anxious, he says, for your Father in heaven knows what you need. When you pray, you pray to the Father. I mean, it's not technically that there's a law that says you have to, but it'd be pretty good for your soul to remind yourself, Father, you've got that access. You know, there's the, the great classic picture uh, in, that was in Time Magazine of when John F. Kennedy was behind the Resolute desk and you got little, uh, little John, uh, you know, peeking through underneath the desk, opening the door. He was a son. And only he would have access to the Oval Office and to be with the president like that. That's what God has given you. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. He brought all those who believe, who trust in him, into the family from the outside. So you're no longer an outsider, but an insider. He sent the spirit of his son through Jesus, the resurrected and risen son, and the Spirit was sent to bear witness to your heart that you are his child. And so he's risen. Okay, he's purchased, purchased your redemption. He's pouring out his Spirit on the church because he wants you uh, and me to be crying out to him, Abba, Father. And I just walk and revel in the sweetness and the richness of that relationship. So let's, let's uh, pray and give him thanks for that. Father, We thank you that from the beginning of time, you set your love on us to bring us into your family. We didn't have a clue. We certainly didn't deserve it. But just like Frankie and Avery on the other side of the globe, growing up in a, with an entirely different worldview, you sent your son to redeem them, to make them your daughters. And then you sent the spirit of your son into their hearts crying, Abba, Father. They knew it. They wished they could worship Jesus at Easter, and they can, and they are today. Father, you're giving the same to us. Lord, any, any of us who, who have not had that connection, have not made that transaction, hunt us down, nip, us, nip at our heels, pursue us to you, to believe that what Jesus did was sufficient, that Jesus is resurrected, that he does Send his spirit to change our hearts. Because God, we, we want to walk with you. We want to know you. We want to have that security that we can cry out to you as our Abba Father. That you'll be everything that we know an earthly father should be. Even though that's not always the case. So we rest in what Jesus has done as we pray in his name. Amen.